If you're sort of forced to sit down in front of an animal for two months, for example, like you, it's incredible how much you can learn. Yeah, of course, because, for example, if we have like small collection in our home, it is easier to track it. It is easier to monitor it. But if you have a collection of like 2000 animals and everything should be very fast, everything should be super precise, everything should be super economic, uh, you don't have time actually to like to stay, to stop and and think what the animals are doing, what they really need. Sometimes you skip some obvious things sometimes. For example, uh, what we did with Urplatus Fantasticus, we, sk we skipped the point when uh, uh, female and the male uh, putting together, they, uh, so they made, uh, they, uh, so the female lays eggs, but in very, very um, big uh, number of cases, sometimes so suddenly a male dies. Why? You have a lot of food, you have plenty of everything, you have you have plenty of space, water. What do you need to stay alive? the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today I'm speaking with Alexei Maroschuk who is the head of research and development at Bioin Terrarium Center located in Kiev, Ukraine. Bioin started back in 1993 as an importer and an exporter but they are now mainly a captive breeding operation. They breed a wide variety of different species of reptile including Euromastics, Europlades, different species of iguana and chameleon and they have these incredible beautiful facilities in the Ukraine. Actually I think they have three facilities and it's not just one but unless you've been living under a rock you're well aware of the fairly serious conflict that is happening in the Ukraine right now and how it is affecting just the everyday civilians. So at the beginning of this podcast, we talk about what Bion does, what type of work they do, the incredible initiatives they're starting through the Responsible Herpetoculture Initiative that is pushing our hobby in the right direction, pushing herpetoculture in the right direction, helping promote proper research and journal documentation. Now we discussed that and then we discussed the sad part of the story, which is how they have been affected by this conflict in the Ukraine. So Alexei talks about how they had to shuffle all their animals out on it's basically the drop of a hat notice on a very emergency basis, how they've lost animals in this occasion, how they've actually lost facilities and, and buildings during this time. It is really sad to hear the amount of stress and anxiety and loss that has been caused by this and Alexei really talks about it and even in the middle of the, the podcast the air siren does go off as a f warning of an air t attack now of course Alexei is still safe it the, the the interview was not interrupted by anything major that happened but it is still quite scary to hear that sort of thing in the middle of the podcast so you will hear that as well but the, the main thing of this conversation, the main point I want to get across is this is an organization that is doing the right things. They're captively breeding. They're trying to push the hobby in the right direction by promoting proper ethical keeping and holding keepers and themselves to high standards to make sure that we actually are respected amongst the greater community. And right now they actually need help. They need help through donations. They need help through, eventually they're going to need help to get some for us to purchase offspring from them because they're going to have way too many offspring for their facility to hold. All of that is laid out in this podcast. So I do hope you 
it's hard to say enjoy the episode. You will enjoy it because Alexei is brilliant and he shares some incredible information, but it's also pretty heart-wrenching to hear some of the stories that they're having to go through. And I really hope we can rally this group of people that listen to the show and help them in some way. And and you will listen to this episode and, and even though they're asking for donations, they're still going to provide information and provide content if you do donate to them. So it's not even just a donate do- donation that's going to help them. Of course, it's going to help them, but you're also going to receive some, some content in return as far as information and, and journal type information. So I, I won't explain everything now like I'll let Alexei do all the talking and and I think I will leave it there. Before we jump into the episode, make sure you head to the animalsathomenetwork.com website. That is where all the show notes for this episode will be as well as the YouTube description, which is particularly important in this episode because if you are interested in supporting Biowin, there's going to be the links to do that, all the, the PayPal links and whatnot or the donation links as well as links to the Responsible Herpetoculture page. So all of that will be there. So please go check that out. If you are interested in supporting the podcast financially, you can do that over at patreon.com slash animals at home for $3 a month. And thank you so much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you are interested in anything reptile-related equipment-wise, make sure you head to the affiliate links in either the show notes or the YouTube description. If you do make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And I think that is it. Let's jump into the episode. Alexi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. I do really appreciate it. And I know that it's an incredibly tough time for you and for Biowind and everything else in the Ukraine. And, uh, you know, there's so many different facets of this conversation because outside the political issues that are happening, this is still a, a fascinating company you work for and business you work for. And the, the stuff that you guys are doing are incredible. So I would love to start with Biowind itself and then we'll get into some of the turmoil that's happening as well. And then we can go from there. So wh- why don't you just give us a quick sort of background and history of Bion? When when did it start and, and how did it start? Well, uh, actually, Bion, uh, so actually I am working here for uh, for six years now, and uh, but Bion uh, is way, way older. So the company was uh, started in 1993 as a commercial import-export operations. And um, in recent years, I think starting with uh, 2017, 2016, we have been slowly but steadily trying to uh, evolve in a company that is specialized in breeding of reptiles and amphibians and and, uh, sales uh, of these uh, animals on the market. And uh, in the very recent several years, we um, are mainly focused on the conservation um, strategy of captive breeding because uh, some, for some people, it might not be very obvious, but if you are using uh, healthy captive bred adapted uh, animals and reptiles, uh, then the wild populations um, have less press from poachers, from smugglers, from something like that. So uh, we have to just uh, we have to uh, deal with the fact that uh, exotic animals like reptiles and amphibians they will always be in big demand in the world and it is our um, like it is our choice how this demand will be made so whether we allow uh, poachers and smugglers steal everything from the wild nature and destroy it completely or we might um, think somehow to uh, and uh, develop some techniques some approaches and to breed in big quantities uh, the reptiles and amphibian species that are in in good demand like to meet the needs of the market and Therefore, at the same time, help to um, uh, make conservation of these species. 
not only in the wild. So during last years, that's what we are doing. Breeding in big quantities, healthy, adapted uh, animals like reptiles and amphibians uh, and selling them all over the world. Well, it's, it's such a good point because the demand isn't going to go away. So the, the question is, how do we fulfill the demand? And if we can do that in a captive bred setting, that clearly is the most ideal. So what was the, the reason to shift away from focusing mainly on import-export to, to captive breeding? Obviously, like you'd mentioned, why, how important captive breeding is, but was there something in the philosophy of the company that changed during that time? I'm not sure that there were some like, like, a, like a point when we tried to switch from one um, from one uh, uh, type of activity to another, so it's it's like natural evolution. So uh, if we deal with uh, import expert uh, things uh, sooner or later, we would uh, come to the decision that we have to produce animals on our own and try to do um, uh, to make as less as possible uh, import from the wild. Uh, by the way, I have to note uh, that all imports that are even uh, um, made from the wild, uh, they are all um, done according to the official quotas, official CITES quotas, official uh, um, quotas from other breeders, for example. It also is one uh, one one possibility. So uh, we don't work with smugglers, we don't work with poachers, we work only with official imports. For example, uh, some according to um, legislation like CITES, I think that you heard about it, mm -hmm. uh, some countries are allowed to export um, wild-caught specimens in a very limited quantity. And this this is how um, we like get the initial breeding stock and then try to develop it, so to develop the next generation, the next multiple generations and something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what about yourself? When when did you have you always been interested in reptiles, or did that happen later in life, or when did when did they come into your life? Well, um, uh, I I think I have I have been interested in reptiles and amphibians as long as I remember myself. So probably since six since I was six or five years old, I, I don't really remember. I was always fascinated by the animals that are scaring the other people. So most people are scared of. Um, they have fear of uh, insects, spiders, frogs, snakes, and something like that. And I was always fascinated about something that is a little bit weird. Um, by the way, uh, I, uh, I'm going to uh, defend my PhD thesis in herpetology. So I'm also a herpetologist, not only working here, but also I'm a junior researcher at um, uh, um, Institute of Zoology in Kiev. Yeah, so. And, and so what, do you, what is your PhD focused on? Uh, my PhD is focused on faunistics, so the uh, study of uh, current situation with uh, batrachofauna of... Uh, mm, gotcha. Okay, that's fascinating. And then why don't you tell us a little bit about what your role is at BioN? What, what, what do you do there? I think we have uh, to have separate con conversation about it because it's very, very long. <laughs> it's a very long talk. Um, wait, uh, well, ba basically I'm a methodologist, so I'm a guy who is um, trying to collect all the information that we receive from our breeding facility. So number of eggs, um, fecundity of uh, females, so tracking the breeding um, events, all the breeding events, so from wintering to uh, the actual breeding. And uh, 
I'm collecting this information, I'm processing it, I'm analyzing it, I'm trying to do something better to, to try to maybe avoid some unnecessary actions uh, and trying to get like maximum from our uh, breeding stock. Also, I'm responsible for a scientific part of our work because we not only like we are not only a, um, uh, a business who is focused on mainly on sales, but we also try to um, make our contribution to world science. This year we published uh, an article about uh, mass breeding of uh, satanic leaf-tailed geckos, Horopratus fantasticus, uh, where we summarize our our experience and make it available for, for anybody who is interested. So after reading this article, I think people who never saw an Horopratus fantasticus will be able at least to breed it. So And that's great. And we are now preparing of preparing several additional articles on different species. Are those articles all available on Bion's website? Uh, they are available on Bion's website. They are okay. available on our Responsible Herpetoculture Project site. Okay. And maybe you could also lay out what the, the facilities look like or just the, sort of the general idea, because I think there's more than one facility, right? Uh, yeah, we have more than, one, more than one facility. So we have, um, actually, we have um, three um, three. Um, yeah, three big facilities. One is where I'm sitting right now. I'm uh, connected with my laptop. I'm I'm not sure that I will that I'm able to go somewhere and show you. If you if you need, I can try. But <laughs> oh no, no, that's okay. Well, maybe I'll, I'll grab some footage from you off off your YouTube channel and I'll paste it in. Mainly, uh, so the first facility is the Bayon laboratory itself. So where it is where I'm sitting right now. It is uh, situated in the downtown of Kiev city, so the capital of Ukraine. Uh, and um, uh, fortunately, we were not uh, hit during the first days of war. Another facility is situated uh, outside Kiev. It is called Exoranch, where we keep uh, small mammals and uh, big reptiles like rhinoceros iguanas, uh, monitors, um, and something like that. And uh, we had also a third facility that is situated near Kharkiv city. It is in the east eastern part of Ukraine, but unfortunately due to war, this uh, facility was uh, bombed and uh, just two days ago, uh, the people who worked there managed to evacuate all the animals from there. And, um, but I, but I'm afraid that that facility doesn't exist anymore. So, so far two facilities that remained. Uh, the total uh, amount of Space that we have is about 2,000 square meters. If we count these two facilities that I described, yeah. So and we have like maybe 20 laboratories that are uh, dedicated to keeping and breeding of different ecological groups of reptiles, like desert species, arboreal geckos, um, some Mediterranean species, and chameleons, and something like that. Well, it is really heartbreaking to hear that one of the facilities has been lost to to the conflict that is really sad I although that's nice to hear that the animals were at least evacuated and uh, but that's still really hard and do, do you float your time between the two facilities is or, or do you mainly work at one yeah I mainly work so since I'm not a keeper so I can I I'm, I I can work here I can work there so my my only uh, urgent need is internet connection and um, so I can go anywhere I, I need and but the people who work with the animals every day they are like um, attached to 
separate facility. So they right, have to right. be there day by day, every day. And, and you'd already mentioned a few different species that you work with. Are, are there some main species that Bion focus on? I know you said the Europlates and, and a few others. Is, is there sort of a, a main one? Mm, during our whole history, we have uh, successfully bred more than uh, 120 species. We made a count recently. Uh, currently, we are working with about 70 species. Among them, uh, more than 10 species of uh, leaf-tailed geckos, Moroplatus genus. We also work with uh, terrestrial geckos like Eublifaris, three or four species, as far as I remember. Yeah, three species of uh, Eublifaris, uh, spiny-tailed li- uh, lizards, um, what else, different agamas and iguanas from all over the world, so from Mexico to Australia. Uh, we breed skinks, we breed uh, chameleons, uh, some Lacertida, so different different uh, taxons mm-hmm. for you is this uh, really a dream job for you it seems like if you're a reptile lover and you, you like research and you like to learn you're kind of it seems like you're in a, the perfect place yeah of course it's it's a perfect place for me because uh, so i wanted to work with reptiles i studied reptiles at university i almost completed my phd so uh, I'm one of not so many zoologists in Ukraine who found a good job, mm. an interesting job actually, uh, that is connected with uh, with biology, with zoology. So I'm modern. I'm modern. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, it sounds amazing. And one thing that is incredible about when I see pictures and video from the facilities at Bion is the quality of care. You know, it's so common that we see when we're talking about large scale breeders is everything is reduced down to the bare minimum, get these animals to breed, make everything clean and clinical. But when I see the enclosures and the setups that the animals have at your facility, A, they are fair uh, fair size, but B, there's lots of enrichment and live plants and and they just look like good enclosures. So how how is that possible? Because the the common myth is like to, if you're going to have a large quantity of animals, you're going to have to reduce the care down to nothing. But clearly, you guys are proving that's not the case. Uh, well, uh, uh, you are a little bit wrong because um, yeah, of course, we try to do our best, like to make the most um, the most favorable conditions for our animals because this is the only way for them to feel comfortable and to breed successfully. So we don't have other um, other possibility, and we have to create as 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 much um, favorable conditions as, as we can. But uh, I have to, let's be fair, uh, I have to admit that most of our um, uh, facilities, most of our terrariums are decorated also in, in a very minimalistic way. So when I mentioned the mass breeding of uh, Uroplatus fantasticus, it was bred in very, very minimalistic terrariums where we um, create only the basic conditions. So ultraviolet light, um, heating, uh, humidity, diet, uh, um, moist chambers, and so on and so forth. And everything should be uh, set in the way that we have to be, to spend as less time for servicing of one single uh, terrarium as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, you still, obviously there's still an overhead, right? You still have to make sure you're processing the animals quickly and efficiently cost-wise, right? So that way you can sell them and still make money. Mm-hmm. Of course, I would like, I personally, I would like to uh, make much more uh, like habitat enrichment for our animals, much more so. For example, decorating terrariums with our leaf-tailed geckos, with, with uh, living plants, for example, fig trees, or I don't know, artificial um, 
poggers or something like that, of course, it would be better. But we have to be precise. We have to uh, save. Uh, we have to save money. We have to. We, we always have to be in a balance. So between the uh, amount of money and time that is spent per one uh, volume and uh, the amount of animals that we can actually service. Uh, and nowadays we have be we have to be even more and more precise in uh, spending. So we count every single. Ravena, I, I, I don't know if you have the English variant for our national uh, money. So, so every single penny is counted, and that's this is the only way how we survive. Mm. Well, even providing lighting, for example, is something that goes beyond a lot of breeding operations. Of course, if you if you work with a desert species like uh, Euromastics, um, I think that so uh, as far as I remember, once we spent about ten thousand dollars. For so for the entire facilities to pay for the you know this uh, to pay to pay for water electricity heating and so on and so forth. Of course, it is uh, much higher in winter because we are not in California. We are we are in in Ukraine. We have. Uh... Is that Can you hear it? I did yes. hear it. Yes. Yes. That's it. So for those listening, if you can hear anything, that's the uh, maybe you could just quickly tell us what that is. Uh, this is an air raid warning. So somewhere from Russian territory, a rocket was uh, launched to the territory of Ukraine. And um, all regions that are uh, situated on a possible way of uh, flying of this rocket turns on the air raid warning, like to warn people about possible rocket hit and everybody have to go to the basement or some sort of bomb shelter. Yeah, I don't do it because um, actually it's like a routine. So during the first first days, we ran to the basement, then back, then again to the basement, then again back. And But after three months of such activity, <clears throat> sorry, we have to work with animals. We have to take care about them. And uh, that's a big risk. But, and that's that's a daily occurrence, basically. You were saying, yeah. Uh, where we stopped? Uh, yeah, about the economy, about the about the lamps. So, for example, if we work with desert species like Uroplatus, uh, like uh, Uromastics, uh, some of them have to bask at about plus sixty four degrees Celsius under the basking point. You can imagine how expensive is the lamp. And how much how much energy it consumes, like yeah, exactly, like you were saying. Plus, you're you're in the Ukraine, so it's not uh, it's sort of like me being in Canada. It's not we don't get free temperature from the sun. You have to artificially create that, and it's it's a little bit more difficult. So one of the things that I know you do, as you were saying earlier, is you keep track of everything. You're a methodologist, and and are there any species that you guys have worked with that you've implemented new ways to breed? I think that's you know one of the areas that herpetology is always looking for is being more efficient and getting species to breed that we've never got to breed before. So are there any highlights that you've been able to work with where you've kind of unlocked some some uh, secrets? Well, um, I, I, I'm not sure that we like that we are like big mass inventors of some new and some completely new and super effective approaches. Yeah, we always uh, like change. Uh, we always make some changes according to the real situation to what we have. And uh, 
even if I tell you um, sometimes for other breeders, it might it may be absolutely use, useless because they have another approach. So, for example, with uh, so different breeders use different incubation substrate, for example. So back in the beginning of uh, the 21st century, everybody was using vermiculite. So everybody used it as a perfect substrate and so on and so forth. Now we switched more to perlite, for example, because uh, a lot of people in the world switched to perlite and uh, it really works better to, according to our experience. Uh, some species are incubated in ceramics. Some species appear to need uh, an uh, obligatory temperature drop in the night because without it, they will not hatch. So basically, this is like very small changes that could not be called a big invention or big breakthrough in herpetology and herpetoculture, but these are always the tiny changes, tiny um, aspects of uh, of improvements that are useful exactly in our facilities, exactly in our um, uh, in our situation. So, for example, if you breed a Parsons chameleon, uh, a breeder, for example, somewhere in USA, in California, can just set a big um, enclosure outside, outside, and he or she will get just the temperature and humidity conditions that Parsons have on Madagascar. They don't have to 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 create everything from from complete zero, and here in Ukraine we have to do it from nothing. So, time of lighting, uh, uh, changes in humidity, changes in temperature, uh, changes in uh, the level of humidity according to the um, season and according to the time of a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a constant. It's you're right. It's very location specific, and you have to develop your own pattern and your own care kind of guide in order to to have success do, do you have a favorite oh, sorry oh no go ahead we are ahead. always happy to share our experience we readily share it in our facebook page uh, in our we create special manuals where we describe everything how we do it because it might somehow match the approach that other breeder somewhere in canada for example use and then we will be super helpful and he or she will be very beneficial from yeah, exactly. It gives everybody a good starting point and then you can sort of manipulate as you need based off of the location that you're in. Do you have a favorite genus or species that, that you like to work with? Mm, well, too many um, to choose. personal, my favorite species is, uh, let us say, I, uh, frankly saying I don't have a favorite species because all the, all the reptiles, they are all, all amazing. So from a tiny Europlatus to bigger in Sarah Siguana, they are all amazing. They are all interesting in terms of like mm, looking after them. So uh, they are all, all amazing. For example, um, and when you like successfully breed certain species for a long time, well, you got a little bit bored. So you want some new, you want something new. So you want to like to switch to other species that you never bred. And that is something new for you. For example, now I'm, I'm really excited about rhinoceros iguanas because they are really smart. They are really, they are, they are fantastic animals. And we are now trying again to, to play with conditions and to breed them in big quantities, in really big quantities. And so far, I think we will be successful. I, I hope this year, probably next year, but anyway, 
And for example, I can mention the first lockdown when we had uh, COVID-19 in uh, 2020, in the spring. And uh, when we, so due to lockdown, so sometimes we don't have even public transport to get to work. So some of us had to stay here for, I lived here for two months, as I, I, I think. Yeah, oh my and God. during yeah, and during these two months, when I was uh, looking, uh, when I was um, uh, spending time with the animals in laboratories, after like after nine p.m., after ten p.m., when they are most active, and usually our workers go home during this time, and nobody really saw them in the in in their peak activity, and so during these two months. I collected more information than during the last 20 years. Mm. So how they behave, how they interact with each other, how males make courtship with the females, how they mate, how they copulate. So how they just, how they compete, for example. Yeah. And uh, this allows us like to dramatically change our previous approach that we used in breeding of these species to other approach it is described in the in the article that i mentioned uh yeah and and it really it it, it was really super well it, it that that's a point that I, I make a lot on this show is how important observation is and and that's one thing that we don't going around doing your care routine you know doing the the waters the food but then you don't actually sit down and watch the animals because you have life everybody goes out and you know you go to work you have the kids whatever it is and you actually miss out on like eight ninety eight percent of the animal behavior so if you're sort of forced to sit down in front of an animal for two months for example like you it's un- incredible how much you can learn yeah of course because for example if we have like small collection in our home it is easier to track it it is e- e- easier to monitor it but if you have a collection of like 2000 animals and everything should be very fast, everything should be super precise, everything should be super economic, uh, you don't have time actually to like to stay, to stop and, and think what the animals are doing, what they really need. Sometimes you skip some obvious things sometimes. For example, uh, what we did with Urplatus Fantasticus, we, sk- we skipped the point when uh, uh, female and the male uh, putting together, they uh, so they mate, uh, they uh, lay, so the female lays eggs, but in very very um, big uh, number of cases, sometimes su- suddenly a male dies. Why? You have a lot of food. You have plenty of everything. You have you have plenty of space, water. What do you need to stay alive? What's the problem? And when I stayed uh, uh, here for two months, I realized the problem is that uh, during uh, courtship, during mating season, any male of uh, of a reptile stops eating, stops doing everything, and is and is thinking about just one thing about mating and copulating with a female. And of course, if you have a minimalistic uh, terrarium, sorry, a minimalistically equipped terrarium, then uh, a male constantly sees a female. So they don't have enough visual barriers. And female works as a trigger for mating behavior. So even being surrounded by plenty of food 
male is only thinking about breeding and not about food. And that's why they just, okay, I want this female, I want this female, okay, I have to eat, no, I want this female. So, and that's why they just exhaust and so on. So we decided to separate them after after two weeks of breeding season and then putting together, then back. And this helps us to save a lot of lives. Yeah, that's a, that's a really amazing insight. So basically, they're starving themselves to death because they're just so focused on mating. And it's I, I had one of my boas, my male boa. I don't know if there's something with the spring temperatures or whatever. He was just like full on in mating mode. And this is an animal that I've had for six years or so and has never missed a meal ever. And suddenly, he was incredibly active and he, he stopped eating. for It was only about two months, which is not... That's nothing for a boa, but I was just amazed that he wasn't eating because he always is very aggressive. He takes his food, but it was a good example of how, you know, he's like, he's got his mind set on one thing. He could care less about the rat. It's just, I, I, I want a mate. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, that's a really, especially with a, something as small as a gecko, right? They don't have a ton of time to go without eating. Exactly. And in, in the wild, they, they don't see females like, for example, for weeks, sometimes for months. And that's and that's more than enough for them, like to recover, to restore their strengths, to restore the fat storages, and and so on. And then when they occasionally find a female, they mate and then spread again in different directions. And here, when we have a limited space, they don't have a, a, an opportunity. So we are creating problems. We are solving the problems. Yes. Well, that's really interesting. I'm sure some people will find that uh, very helpful for their own collections if they have any issues with that because that's yeah, something I'd never really thought about before, especially if they can see the female, then you're going to have the male stuck in that mode for forever, potentially. And that, that tells you how powerful the, the behavior of breeding is. And it overrides almost everything. Yeah. It's amazing. So I, I want to talk about the responsible herpetoculture. You, you, you mentioned it at one point earlier, this, this podcast, and... I know that the original plan for it, it has slightly changed because of the conflict that's happening right now in, in the Ukraine. So we'll, 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 we still will get to the conflict because I know there's lots to talk about there. But maybe we could talk about what responsible herpetoculture is, was it originally meant to be, and hopefully what it will eventually get back to, and, and we can go from there. Well, we st- so the project is still on, so we don't, we, we don't refuse to do it. So basically, this is a project which um, collects all our aims, all our beliefs and all our thoughts on the role of uh, breeding in captivity that uh, can be played by the captive bred specimens, captive bred species uh, and uh, community of people who are actually breeding, breeding reptiles and amphibians all over the world. So the role of all these aspects in global conservation of species. Because um, uh, we have uh, came to the idea that uh, some, like, uh, let us say, some environmentalists or, uh, you know, these different non-governmental organizations who uh, keep yelling that stop breeding animals, stop keeping them, let them, in the, into, let them back into the wild, they have to live into the wild. Okay, the idea is super correct, but if there is no wild nature, suitable for these species, what then? So then these species have to just disappear with the nature. And um, we have a lot of, so, so let's, so my, fer, my, my favorite example is Madagascar. So 
did you see different BBC movies about Madagascar? How how rich is the biodiversity? How uh, how much how many species you have? You 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 see just at the first glance chameleons, lemurs, uh, snakes, insects, everything. But what if I tell you that this is just the 10% of the Madagascar? The other 90% is a produ production of uh, coil, of tree coil or hard coil, production of vanilla, production of coffee, production of tea, rice, and so on. And animals have no places to live. And if we stop breeding them, if we stop developing of such techniques, different approaches to mass breeding, incubation, wintering, keeping, and so on, we might, yeah, we will leave the animals in the wild, but we will lose them completely at the same time as we lose the their wild habitats. Yeah, and um, so the, our responsible herpetoculture project uh, like collects all these all the ideas that are connected with a responsible attitude to towards uh, our responsible behavior towards our reptiles. For example, uh, keeping uh, gene diversity. So not to try not to um, not to follow the trends of morphs, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, then uh, trying to exchange animals between each other. We also promote free um, sales, sales of the animals from one collection to another because it um, helps to uh, to maintain the heterogeneity of the gene pool and the animals are stronger, the animals are like more robust, they are just generally better. Uh, yeah, and of course, uh, we uh, also propagate the free exchange of information. So the more animal we animals we will breed in captivity, the better it is. Uh, sometimes, of of course, every idea can be like can be spoiled. Every idea can be um, understood wrongly or something like that. Of course, so uh, uncontrolled breeding is also bad. But if you breed the amount of animals that is enough to meet the needs of the global market, then you help the animals in the wild to survive. For example, uh, if we talk about whale chameleons, um, they were brought to herpetoculture, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, some 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, they were super, super rare species, super, super, they were super expensive. So one whale chameleon, can be bought for, I think, $100 or $200, something like that. And a lot of the animals were uh, smuggled from the wild, were, were sold on the market on different uh, exhibitions and so on. And now this is a mass breeding species. So everybody is breeding whale chameleons. And therefore, there is no sense in uh, bothering uh, wild population. The same idea is with uh, crested geckos. Mm. They breed like crazy. So ev everybody can breed a crested gecko. Uh, for example, uh, when we evacuated at the, at, the end, at the beginning of the war, uh, we had to be fast and we left uh, several eggs of crested geckos in our home uh, in Kiev. Um, the temperature inside the flat was about like plus 16, plus 18 degrees Celsius. We thought that all the eggs were going to die and unfortunately, but they all hatched. <laughs> so, yeah, and 
till the 1994, as far as I remember, this species was uh, proved to be extinct in the wild. Mm -hmm. And then the new population was rediscovered. And now they are feeling quite fine because everybody's bringing crested geckos in captivity and uh, nobody and nobody wants to go to the wild and catch wild caught individuals. What is more, uh, using uh, captive bred individuals is m much beneficial for everybody. So for, for us as breeders, for simple people who just want a gecko, mm. because they are mostly free of helmets. They are mostly adaptive. They are... Um, they are uh, healthier because if you get animals from the wild it's always a big surprise it's always a big a big set of different problems illnesses viruses fun fungus uh, worms whatsoever and you never know how which percent will survive so if you like buy from a smuggler if you buy like i don't know 100 100 geckos for example only 10 or 20 of them will survive Others will just die, and this is not beneficial for 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 people as a as a, as the final consumers of these geckos. Uh, and if you buy a captive bred specimen, you will have much less problems with with it, and everybody is happy. Yeah, well, and it's a good point too. I mean it takes a lot of time to learn how to breed some of these species and go through several iterations of pairings and matings and mating seasons. You know, you might have to wait for a certain temperature season uh, for, to, to learn how to tinker with these species to get them to breed. So we can't wait until there's like, you know, less than a hundred left in the wild to attempt to pull some out and try to breed them. Right. It's super important that herpetoculture in general and private keepers actually do a great job of this begin to document and learn how to care for these species. And, and, and like you said, as long as, is that's if that's contributing to captive bred sales, then we don't have to worry about pulling animals from the wild. And then the added bonus is that we understand how those species breed. And if it, if the wild populations ever became an issue, we would have that knowledge already. We're not going to use the scant, you know, small amount of species or small amount of individuals to attempt to learn how to breed. That would just never work. Of course. And if you have, for, for example, uh, so-called pro projects of uh, rewilding when you are trying to build the wild nature from from a field or from a artificial forest, you will need some animals like to put inside to like to start the natural um, ecosystem. And if you don't have such animals in the wild or you don't want to uh, affect other populations that remained, well, you can just responsibly use captive bred specimens. Of course, after uh, dozens of uh, vet checks, so we don't want to contaminate wild nature with other like um, uh, with different viruses or something like that. Of course, that should be done very wisely, but this is also an option. This is still an option. And even if it is quite difficult, it is still a good option. Well, and one thing I really like about the responsible herpetoculture framework that you've established is it's a lot about the keeper and what we can do to to make the society better as far as reptile keeping goes. And, and this is not a... a a shot at US ARC or anything, but US ARC really focuses on the, the legislation and getting into the nitty gritty and trying to reverse laws that have already happened. And it seems, or, or reverse laws that are attempting to happen, or, and it seems like responsible herpetoculture is more about how do we make ourselves look better so we don't find ourselves in a situation where lawmakers are trying to stop us from keeping the animals. Is that, does that sound about right? 
Yes, yes, yes. That that's the point. In terms of uh, responsible hepatoculture, yeah, we provide. Uh, so the main opportunities that we provide is the information exchange. So most of the most of the breeders they have really enormous and unique information that no scientist will ever have because scientists are studying uh, mainly mainly uh, scientists are studying wild nature and it is really rare cases where when scientists have its own lab with let us say several hundred of representative of one species like to study the breeding peculiarities for example and here in breeding centers or people who are uh, private breeders they have this experience that should be shared with uh, with others and in terms of responsible hepatoculture project we started a journal responsible hepatoculture journal where we okay this is an official advertising we are looking for authors and everybody is welcome to share their experience in breeding and keeping of any species of reptiles and amphibians especially rare ones okay the end of advertising <laughs> yeah so uh, in this journal we are trying to collect different articles from uh, ordinary private breeders uh, and to uh, show that uh, some species can be really bred in captivity because some organizations uh, don't believe that these species can be bred why? Because there is a lack of information shared. So they will know they will never know that these species can be bred in captivity if nobody tells them about it. That's exactly. simple exactly. logic, for example. So uh, several years ago, uh, it was a complete miracle when uh, somebody bred a earless monitor, Lantanotus borneiensis, and now the whole Facebook is filled with different photos from different breeders who managed to breed these species in captivity. That's that's awesome. That's fantastic. And the same is about chameleons. The same is about uh, turtles, tortoises, snakes, and so on and so forth. And uh, our journal provides opportunity to share this experience. What is more, um, publishing a real scientific article is time consuming. I, as a scientist, I know what I'm talking about because publishing one article can sometimes last for one year, two years, four years or something like that. And in our journal, it is much, much more simple. It is super simple. So you just write your experience, uh, temperatures, diet, whatever. And we made some different, made some corrections, stylistic corrections, and then you have your own publication, you have something that you can, that where you can like um, preserve your experience and your contribution to the world's herpetoculture. Mm, I love that. And it, it what it shows is people who are outside of herpetoculture, you, you can look in and go, wow, these people are actually taking it very seriously and they're being professional about it and they're documenting. It's not just willy nilly, you know, trading random animals and, and not having anything, you know, written down it, it's really we, we want to make sure we're doing the right things and i think because of that it seems like you have a, a good relationship with some public entities as well like maybe zoos or universities or is there a connection there because i mean maybe that's a lot from you because you're doing your phd as well but when i was reading the website it looks like the bio was also connecting with you know the zoological field and the herpetoculture uh, her, her, herpetology field and that's really important too sure we have a lot of connections with breeders and uh, people who work in terrariums of zoos like San Diego Zoo, um, uh, Daugavpils Zoo in Latvia, mm. 
So, uh, and people all over the world, uh, I will be tired about men- of mentioning all of them. Yes, so we are ready, we are ready to cooperate with zoos, we are ready to cooperate with, inst- with scientific institutions, we are ready to cooperate with private breeders. We have no limits, or you can help us, or we can help you. No problem, we have no limits in um, cooperation. So, but I think that sometimes some people hate me because uh, I'm the person who knocks to their Facebook and say, hello, my name is Alexey Marushak. I'm from Bugantarium Center. Please tell how you breed this species that, that, that we can't breed for several years. Please tell us. And, Write it yeah, down. That's a big Send part of my work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this is, that's the big part of my work. And I hope that these people don't hate me. Yeah. And and this really helps in, in, in many times. Sometimes people don't even know what they what they actually do, uh, because um, uh, when you ask different people the same question, you have different answers, and you can um, can make your own your own picture of this breeding from different aspects, from different answers. For example, in this way, we managed to breed Uroboros catafractus, um, armadillo lizard, uh, that are they are super, they are in, in a really big demand and they're super hard to breed because they are social. And if you don't have a social structure of a breeding group, then forget about breeding completely. Mm. Yeah. And, and thanks to the help of friends of us from France, from Germany, from uh, other countries, from USA, uh, we managed to breed it. And that's great. Yeah. One babies last year. And it's really important that, you know, because some breeders, I think, who are amazing breeders, maybe they've been working with reptiles for 20, 30 years, it's almost as if they breed off of feel, like they don't have anything written down because they've done it so often, they, they're just it's like a more of a sixth sense to them. They, they know how to pair the animals and when to do it. And then if you ask them to like specifically write down what they, what they do, they might go, well, actually, I'm gonna have to think about that for a little bit and spend some time like thinking about what I do because they, they do it so successfully, they don't even realize exactly what they're doing. So it's really important for us to be documenting all that. Can you tell us a little bit about the the memberships? How how the memberships we uh, work and and what people would actually get by by being by joining the responsible herpetoculture? Yeah, so um, we officially launched our web page. Uh, we so mo- the vast majority of content inside is for free. So we collect uh, scientific articles on uh, that are dedicated to uh, study of uh, herpetofauna, study of uh, captive breeding, and so on. This is very useful for our um, for our subscribers and so on because um, sometimes uh, there are a lot of articles that um, like show only the negative uh, side of uh, of the of herpetoculture. So okay, a lot of animal dies. That's that's the fact. Nobody is immortal. Yeah, and uh, but. There uh, and such articles, they like they got like bigger PR support from uh, stakeholders, from the you know so activists who who are against herpetoculture, and everybody knows about these articles, but nobody knows that there are much more articles about cases when herpetoculture saved species, mm-hmm. much more articles that show the amount of uh, at least approximated amount of captive bred specimens in the world, in, in the global trade. And we collect such articles with that are with free access, so we don't steal anything. 
we collect them in one place. And if you need some information like to give to your CITES, um, CITES authorities or to or you need some arguments uh, uh, in, 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 in a conversation or something like that, uh, you can go to the to our site and find the article that you need. By the way, during the last two, two years, I tried to collect the information about captive bred specimens on my own. And so last year we bred like more than 4,000 individuals of reptiles in oh, Ukraine. Wow. We are just one center. And you can imagine how many reptiles are captive bred in the world every year. Unfortunately, nobody is. Unfortunately, there there are not so many people who want to share this this information. It's their right. I, I, I'm not blaming anyone. So if you don't, if you want, you share the information. If you don't want, you don't share it. Of course. And so on our responsible herpetoculture project, we try to like collect information about positive aspects of herpetoculture. Also, we collect news about herpetoculture, different uh, online um, uh, manuals like videos, for example, made by Dayan Sayulani, Reptiliatus, I think you know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, Frank Payne from Payne Living Arts and, some, and so on and so forth. We try, we just collect them in one place and giving so-called promotion to people who do really good things. Also, we sell different merch, some T-shirts, uh, bags, uh, cappy or something like that. Um, yeah, of course, we have a responsible herpetoculture journal about what we were talking several last 20 minutes or something like that. Yes, and uh, we also upload full manuals about our that uh, illustrate the, our own experience um, with the certain species. So all the information about breeding, temperatures, incubation medium, how to provide proper winter dormancy, and so on and so forth. Uh, I must warn that uh, our manuals and uh, the journal is they are available only for a certain uh, level of subscription because we have to survive somehow and now since we have big problems with sailing animals because no um, airlines are operating now in ukraine because of war we have to earn money at least for something and now in this way we are going we, we are trying to earn for a living by sharing information also we have a different option called online chat where where you like for five dollars as far as i remember you can ask any questions you can uh, ask anything that you are interested in and if we know the answer if we know the if we know how to help you we will definitely spend as much time as possible with you to answer all your questions to show you probably video to show you everything how we do it like to to help you with the question that you asked mm. yeah and basically so also we collect the general information general positive information and positive um, data that propagates uh, responsible herpetoculture all over the world and will help people to advocate herpetoculture, to advocate their hobby, to advocate our mystics and to see that together we can do more uh, good things than bad things. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'll make sure the, the membership page is in the show notes as well so people can see sort of what the different tier tier levels of support offer. And I think it's it's great. I mean, and, and 
it also helps support you guys, support Bion. And, and if, if it was outside of a wartime, then it would be supporting that to, to, to grow and, and continuously push that forward. And right now, like you said, the biggest thing is you guys aren't able to actually sell animals easily or if at all. And that's where your normal cash flow and, and revenue comes from. So now anything we can do to help keep this uh, system afloat is something that we should all do because it, it's absolutely needed. Yes, and uh, I, we are really thankful for everybody who supported us from the very beginning of the war because, uh, and as our gratitude, we offered people uh, the, the sub- subscription. We offer, we sent the uh, journal as a present and something like that. So we are really help. We are li- we are really grateful for everybody for every single dollar that uh, we received as a donation and. We, we are trying to do our best, like to give at least something to share our info, to share our experience, to help people, because we don't want to stay just with an outstretched hand and say, please give money. And that's all. No, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. we want to do as much as we can in this situation. Yeah, well, there's clearly a tremendous amount of value there that people will get if, if they do uh, lend support. And and also, hopefully, this conflict resolves itself and you can go back to selling animals and that support will still be there to continue to expand this herpetoculture, responsible herpetoculture project because that is so key for us, I think, for everybody to continue to have the, the privilege to keep these animals and work with these animals. We need to be doing the right things. So why don't we talk a little bit about the conflict that's happening in the Ukraine right now? Maybe you could tell us from from your perspective you know when it first started how, how did it unfold for you at bioin because it's so having thousands of animals is, is such a stressful thing in, in this time i'm sure yes um well uh, this it, it will be a long story so prepare yourself well so uh the first thing that uh, was our big mistake is that nobody really believed that this will happen in in the middle of europe in 21st century so we thought all of us and i think even you i think everybody thought that the uh, years of international wars of uh, mass war conflict are in the past unfortunately that's not true and uh, on 24th of february we realized that um, we have big problems Uh, so when it started uh, i was in my bed and uh, it was like 4 a.m. as far as I remember. I uh, I heard a doorbell, opened the door, and nobody was outside. So I was like, oh, strange. Yeah, and my wife uh, woke up, uh, went to um, social media and said, we are. So we are bombed. So the war began. The war began. And we faced, uh, so we, 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 first of all, we were scared. Everybody is scared when the war comes to their country. Everybody is scared. If some, if someone tells that he doesn't, he, he, he don't, he or she doesn't scare. No, they are scared. Yeah, uh, we uh, don't, we didn't know how to behave because uh, we have. First of all, we have to take care about uh, about our lives, about ourselves. Our uh, members of our staff uh, uh, had to evacuate their children, evacuate their uh, families outside Kiev, somewhere to more safe, to safer places. Um, and uh, of course, in this uh, situation, uh, our priorities was were uh, 
with our families. Uh, most of us live some live far from our workplace. So I uh, I live uh, on an opposite bank of the river uh, than the Bayonne is situated. So I have to cross the bridge by a, by a metro by a metro or by car or by any public transport. During war, everything is shut down, and I so and most of us had no opportunity to cross the river and to get to the workplace. Other problem was that uh, so most of our stuff evacuated and it's their priorities. It's normal. Uh, other thing it was that uh, in the very first days of war, um, mil uh, Russians military forces somehow appeared to uh, be in Kiev. I mean, not regular army. I mean, um, some sort of spies. I don't know the English variant for uh, for such groups of troops who are so it's small groups, several people who were invaded previously, and they just started to to make panic, to uh, like to to do as much mass as they could, like like to to destroy everything, to create chaos. And, chaos. Yes, yes, to to bring chaos. And on the second day, we have uh, a gunplay in 200 meters from Bayon's facility. Uh, I uploaded a video on our Facebook page. If you scroll down, you will find it. So, uh, and obviously, so we had no opportunity to go to Bayon. Of course, we got martial law. We have uh, a lot of restrictions, so we uh, uh, we can't be on, um, on, the, on, on the street after like 8 p.m. or something like that. So people had no opportunity to go to work, to get back from work. And for the first uh, six days, as far as I remember, or five days, six days, nobody cared about the animals. So we had no opportunity to go to work because of gunshots, because of bombs, because of air raid warnings because everything because this chaos and unfortunately a lot of animals died uh, first of all we are talking about Uroplato species that are very very sensitive uh, to humidity and they have to be watered at least uh, twice a day in the evening and in the morning and you can imagine how these animals uh, felt them th themselves uh, without water for almost for a week when we finally managed to get here uh, we, on the car of our director, uh, we uh, first thing that we made is evacuation of the most sensible animals. So we evacuated all the Europlatus species, all, all the Europlatus uh, geckos. We evacuated them to Exoranch, so which is situated outside Kiev, and it was a big fortune that. Uh, my family, so my, me and my wife and uh, um, other people who are our friends, uh, we evacuated to the village that is very, very close to Exoranch. So we could be there and took care about Roplatus. Uh, then when uh, Russians were pulled away from Kiev, uh, some people went back and uh, we managed, so some of us le lived here uh, and to care about uh, most of the desert species. So Euromastics, terrestrial geckos, and so on, different Australian species, skinks. Uh, fortunately, some of them were in uh, winter dormancy, so we have to prolong it some a little bit, like to 
to reduce the amount of food cons- um, consumed uh, and uh, like to, to, to make less, um, less things to care about during, this, during the very first days. Uh, so when some pa- some people from our staff went back and we like l- looked at the animals, uh, so some were lost. Uh, recently we made a count, so we lo- lost more than 100 animals mm. in total. Uh, unfortunately, Uroplatus, uh, not not so most part of vast vast majority of the animals that died were Uroplatus because even if they were alive at the moment of evacuation. They suffered heavily from dehydration, uh, which uh, caused a lot of problems with shedding, and not not many of them made it. For example, we lost 69 heads of Uroplatus fantasticus. Most of them captive bred, unfortunately. And um, what what was it like walking back into the facility for the first time, not knowing what to expect? Because obviously you hadn't been there for a week. In super hurry, so we. We were awaiting for bombing every single minute. So we just t- took everything that we could. We packed uh, uh, the car with the uh, boxes, with uh, bags with Uraplatus, and then just drove away. Uh, we were in a really big hurry, in a really big house, and uh, we made, we became more or less, like, more or less. Uh, not as nervous as we were the first time, just in the end of May. So you can imagine the the amount of stress that uh, we experienced and our animals experienced. Uh, fortunately, we had we received a lot of help from our friends, from subscribers, from uh, different uh, veterinarians who helped us with advice, with um, information. Yeah, and uh, most part of our breeding stock. Uh, of Uroplatus species was saved. Uh, now they are recovering, and most of so most of the animals that died, they died during the subsequent several weeks after this. So we can't tell that the most of the deaths occurred in one time. So right, it right. is a prolonged it is a prolonged process, unfortunately. Yes, and in May uh, we went back in the first part of May. Uh, other problems that we faced uh, and are facing now is the lack of fuel. So we can't, um, so, uh, we can't uh, get enough petrol for our cars, uh, even if we have money, uh, because Russians bombed all the oil stations, not the oil stations, but the oil factories that are processing uh, oil to petrol and so on. Also, we had a lot of problems with uh, insects. Uh, we are producing all the insects that we consume on our own. And uh, as during the first days, uh, we had no one to work with the insects. We lost the whole generation of uh, feeding insects. And to restore it, uh, it took us like one and a half months. Wow. So wow. all the... All the all the food was very limited. We uh, fed animals like one or two crickets per head, and and it and that's it was really we were really scared that we will just lose all the breeding stock because animals that um, yeah we were fortunate 
Fortunately, when they awake from uh, the winter dormancy, they want to breed and they don't want to eat. Yeah, this it also gave us some time to restore the in uh, the our food base. Uh, Again, due to panic, uh, we don't we stop receiving uh, our normal we stop receiving our normal normal amounts of uh, vegetables and fruits uh, because a lot of people evacuated. Some people uh, where we usually bought these uh, products they disappeared, and we had to buy everything that we could find in the market, and the markets were empty because. So supermarkets, all the shelves were empty because of the panic, because of the chaos. People bought everything, literally everything. So if we normally spent like um, like one dollar per uh, certain amount of food, uh, I mean plant food, we had to spend ten dollars per for the same amount. Wow! Wow! You can you, you can imagine what uh, what chaos was uh, going on here, and uh, so I was I had to drive to my uh, workplace. So I mean, outside Kiev, so from one village to another, like twelve kilometers there, twelve kilometers ba- back by bike to save petrol. Wow! Oh my gosh! Yeah, but I still have this. <laughs> how, how how much stress were you under during this time like we're, we're like i'm sure you could barely sleep there's just so there's just so many moving parts and so many negatives happening yeah it we 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 live in ukraine stress is uh, is is normal part of our life unfortunately mm. uh, well uh i don't know how to comment it so we are still living in a stress so you heard the air raid warning yeah, so, uh, uh, by the way, at the very first day, we even uh, saw a flight jet that flew near our home and uh, dropped a bomb. Really? It was really, it was really scary. And uh, when we were uh, outside Kiev, so working, I remember two or three cases when we saw a rocket that was hit by anti-rocket system. It's like a big salute. But it's not a salute, right. uh, and and the noise is, the noise goes the, to the bottom of your heart. So it's really loud. It's it's really so. At one time, we even we 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 thought that our gla- uh, the the glass in the window would broke, but unfortunately, it didn't. But fortunately, because of the noise, yeah, yeah, because of the noise, because of of the vibration. Yeah, it is really scary, and. Uh, and and now we are here. So when we went back to Bayonne, we uh, transferred the animals back again because here we have everything. We have climate control system. We have uh, uh, some sort of aut- automated system that, to some extent, helps us to maintain conditions in the laboratory and to maintain suitable conditions for the animals. And uh, on the Exoranch, uh, so we 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 had. A very limited time of of spring, when we have like more or less suitable temperature for Uroblatus, and uh, in any way we would have to give them back here because otherwise they will all die. Mm. Otherwise, but fortunately, fortunately we are here. We are 
so the Russians were kicked from our from uh, Kiev region, from Kiev, from uh, several neighboring regions, and the whole fun is now uh, going on uh, in eastern regions and in southern regions. Uh, still, the biggest problem is that we cannot operate and we cannot uh, say, um, we cannot ship animals because, as I mentioned before, no um, uh, no airlines are operating and we just cannot uh, send our our uh, our animals uh, to to their destination. So in Japan, in Europe, in USA. Everything is blocked. A lot of people uh, made uh, their uh, like they they paid deposits previously. Like th we normally uh, take thirty percent of the whole cost of the of the shipment as a deposit, and then we re we received uh, the rest of the sum after the animals are actually delivered. And uh, we are really grateful to those customers who said, okay, guys, keep the deposit with you. We don't want it back. When you will be able to, to ship the animals, please do. And till that time, please feel we are absolutely fine if you uh, keep the deposit with you because this, if, we, if, if we had to uh, give back all the deposits, we, will just we would just be closed and... We will not be able to pay uh, money to our keepers. We are not be able to to pay for it, for electricity, for for rent, for everything. Well, and, and the other thing too, that's sort of maybe an unintended consequence of all this is you can't sell these animals, which means you have the animals in your facility, which means you're caring for them and paying to care for them, which means the profit off of that animal is every day getting less and less and less. And I'm sure. So even when you do sell them there may be almost no profit or a negative profit by the time you get to them. And, and what about space? Is space going to become an issue? Yes, yes. Everything is an issue and uh, things are even worse. First, uh, animals don't know about war. They continue to breed. Uh, we have no opportunity to place them uh, separately. We have limited space. So, and, uh, they all, so we can't put two males together because they will kill each other. So we have, we are limited with our own, so we are catched in our own trap. So we can only keep animals in pairs or breeding groups, like to uh, to use the, the available space uh, with maximum efficiency. Uh, another thing is, you remember about the facility that I uh, told you about in Kharkiv that was bombed. They evacuated the animals, and these animals are now on their way here. So during the last two weeks, we received more than 600 heads, and more than 300 are on approach. Uh, breeding stock of, uh, of Tiliqua species, breeding stock, stock of Timon Lepidus, uh, jeweled lizard, breeding stock of uh, crested geckos, uh, uh, bearded dragons. And everything is, go, is going here. Uh, we have several hundreds of eggs of uh, Camellia calitratus. I have no idea of whale chameleon. I have no idea what we will do with them. Fortunately, babies can uh, be kept together in big quantities like 30 or 40 uh, hatchlings uh, in one more or less big volume, like for first two months. 
But what will be next, I have no idea. We are trying to find the ways of deliver uh, of delivery of animals uh, through our European countries, so uh, through our partners in European countries, in Poland, in Czech Republic, in the Netherlands. But uh, everything is very very complicated because we have problems with fuel, we have problems with time because uh, when you ship animals by plane, it's usually from several hours to like one or two days. And if you try to get animals first to Europe by car, this is one day. Then they will stay there for several, for some time, I don't know which time. Then they will, I hope, they, they will be shipped from some, some of European airports to the final destination. And as the time of delivery is prolonged, uh, we can only, we can only pray that the that all the animals will be safe, mm. and that's the point. Wow! It, do, when you do make sales in, in a normal time, are you selling to mostly wholesaler type people or people that are you know larger breeding operations, or do you sell to individuals as well who are just looking for one or two animals? Both, both. So um, uh, what we basically do is uh, so if we deal with a wholesaler. He or she just gives us the order. We say, we say, okay, we can do this. We can't do this. Uh, let's set the final price and final time of delivery. Okay, with wholesaler, it is always uh, easier. And we also uh, sell um, for individual customers as well. For example, in Europe and in USA, um, in Japan, of course. Uh, uh, so in this way, we collect many, many, many small orders, then uh, uh, collect the big shipment that is delivered to a person who is our representative either in Europe or in USA. This representative uh, mm, with all official uh, documents, he or she can uh, officially like take the animals from the customs and then spread the small orders uh, to the individual customers. Can people pay and buy an animal right now without, with just the expectation that it will be shipped at some point in the future? Hopefully, like I'm just trying to wonder if if, if people would. If, I'm sure people are going to want to support this, and and they can do it through the memberships. But I mean, even because a big part of it is going to be clearing you guys out of this the offspring that you're going to have, and and there will be people listening to this podcast that will want to buy animals. And I'm wondering, can they make purchases now with just you say, hopefully in a month or two we can send it, or is there anything like that in place? Actually, so technically it is possible. So you just uh, write down a per private message uh, to our Facebook page and then uh, our our uh, sales manager will respond to you. But I think that we are not um, ready now to give the response, to take responsibility for such uh, orders because we have to be like 100% honest with ourselves and with our customers. So we cannot guarantee anything. We cannot right, guarantee right. that uh, our center will not be bombed, for example, tomorrow or something like that. And uh, so far, the best way to support us is to send a donation uh, uh, and uh, or subscribe to our uh, to our responsible herpetoculture project uh, website. Uh, of course, if you send a donation, we will give you subscription for free. Yeah, that, that's okay. If the donation is like is equivalent to the sum of, uh, to the cost of subscription, something right, like right. that, of course. Uh, but technically this is possible. And if you want, just keep us in mind. And as soon as, uh, 
this, uh, in addition to donations, just keep in mind that we exist and uh, when everything will end, I hope, with our victory uh, and when uh, the first airlines uh, will operate in Ukraine, as soon as it uh, happens, we are open, we, we will be happy to sell as much as possible as we can. Yeah, and uh, I think that by that time we will get more most of the captive bred animals that we expect in this breeding season because uh, they keep laying eggs. So we have more than uh, 150 eggs from uh, actually more than 250 eggs from our different oblifaris species. We have more than 30 eggs above from Uroplatus fantasticus. Yes, they continue to, to lay eggs mm. during this time. Uh, yesterday we found the first fertile clutch of Petrosaurus talosinus by a blue rock lizard, which is really in, in really good demand. Uh, we got first clutch from our Australian frilled uh, dragons and so on. So we keep breeding animals and we will be more than happy to assist and to, uh, to sell animals to those who need it. So yeah, I think that's that's a that's great. The best thing people can do is sign up for a membership or make a donation. That way you can support the bio and financially and then just pay attention to your social media, your Facebook as soon as the opportunity arises that animals can be shipped. If people are looking for animals, you guys will have animals to sell. Yes, exactly. So subscribe to our Facebook page, subscribe to our uh, responsible herpetoculture website, uh, share our information, share our posts. Uh, you can do whatever you want. You can share our photos, share our videos, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and so on and so forth. So any type of support is very welcome, and we will be more than happy to assist when everything uh, ends. And by the way, also a small advertising, uh, we sell animals with uh, legal paperwork. So every single animal that you receive, whether it is a cited species or non-cited species, will be accompanied with proper documents. So and you will officially be able to breed the animals in your country with these documents. With What's included on those documents? Like if, if it's not a CITES animal, let, let's take a non-CITES animal, for example, because that's, what, what would be on that document? Uh, so this is, it will be a vet certificate that the animal is healthy. This will be, um, uh, I don't know, I don't remember the official like title of this document, but this document proves that this, this animal was captive bred at Bionterarium Center. So it is also uh, accompanied with, uh, uh, with a small page from our uh, breeding list. So, but uh, as far as I remember that, um, that information from our breeding list uh, is, uh, is uh, given uh, only if, if the customer asks about it. Uh, if not, then not. Uh, and uh, so the certificate of origin of the breeding stock. So these three basic documents you will receive. Yeah, yeah well, that, and that's something that we just don't see enough of in herpetoculture in general, especially in sort of the more hobbyist side. It's just sort of willy-nilly. Animals are flying all over the place. And I think they're, and it sort of goes back to the journal idea too, like just documenting things better and being more clear and, and selling an animal with papers, even if it isn't a CITES animal that absolutely legally requires papers, I think is still something that shows that we're being professional. You could take that to uh, institutes and say, these are the, the group of animals I have. Maybe you could even donate animals to a zoo at some point, but you're not going to be able to do that if you just have two random animals that you bought off of some guy down the street. Yes, exactly. But uh, by the way, I have to know that probably I named some of the documents wrongly 
and our sales manager knows more about it. So if if she tells you other set of documents, she is right and I was wrong. So let us let us be hundred percent honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Well, Alexi, this is an incredible conversation. I feel like the first half of the conversation or, or more was the podcast we would have recorded before the crisis was a was a thing you know because I, the the work that you guys are doing and and the the breeding and and the sort of outlook you have on herpetoculture is incredible and inspirational and then on top of it then we have to layer on this conflict that this political conflict and wartime that you're going through which is heartbreaking and sad and and scary like you said and i think everybody is hoping that you stay safe and and that the animals stay safe and we're all going to support you as much as possible is is there anything else that we left unsaid today that you wanted to mention before we officially wrap up I think we I I think we discussed all the questions that you sent me. Um, I think we are we are more or less done. Can, so, can you let everybody know the website, the Instagram? Where can everybody find you online? I will send you all the all, all the information that uh, you can put uh, um, in the description of the video. So the link to our website, responsible hepatoculture website, YouTube channel, Facebook page, uh, way of making donations, and so on and so forth. So. I will I will send it to you. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Alexi. This was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. All right. That brings us to the end of that episode. Alexei, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I know all the listeners will be feeling the same way I am. It is really a heart-wrenching story. These political conflicts, I'm not going to get into any of the politics of this whole thing, but at the end of the day... The civilians and the citizens are the ones that have to suffer through all of this. And to hear stories like that, it's really sad. And you realize how unstable things can be when you think they're stable. As he said, I'm not sure if it was in the podcast or when I was talking to him before. You just don't think of those things happening in you know a, a relatively mo- or a modern European country. And, and unfortunately, it is happening. So... I, there will be an opportunity. Well, there is an opportunity right now for you to help. If you have the financial means to help and support them, please do that. And like we said at the end, there is going to be a point in time where they're going to need to sell animals. Once they're able to ship animals out, then if you are looking for animals and, and you have space for them, let's help. Let's get the community to, to rally around these folks and, and help them out. Because like I said, without the whole Ukraine conflict aside, this is the type of organization we want to support. They're doing the right things. They're talking about ethical keeping. They're talking about promoting the proper ethics within herpetoculture in general, which is just so, you can't stress how important that is. So we want to be supporting them for that reason. And then even more so with the destruction that they're having to deal with and the loss and the financial loss that they're having to deal with, we want to be able to support them through that as well. So I hope if you do have a chance to do that, you do. And I think that's it. If you are looking for more information or any of the links or anything on this episode, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. You'll find everything there. If you're interested in supporting the podcast financially, you can do that at patreon.com slash animalsathome. And as always, thank you so much to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And I think that is it. I will see everybody in the next episode.